This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later this hour, we'll meet the four musicians of the band She's Us. They'll be playing many of their original songs in a medley of moon songs, Saturday night at Mount Sequoia under a full moon. Kyle's conversation with them is in our second half hour. We'll start with student loans. About 390,000 Arkansans have student loan debt. That's according to the Education Data Initiative. President Joe Biden recently announced a plan to forgive $10,000 in student loan debt to individuals earning less than $125,000 annually and $20,000 for those who had Pell Grants. The plan has come with its fair share of feedback. Some on the left suggest it's not enough relief, while some on the right are calling the act a handout and socialism. But how do we get here? And what further action can we expect to address the $1.7 trillion making up student loan debt in the United States? Matthew did some research, and he tells us more. Going to college wasn't always this expensive. The average cost of tuition, room, and board for a four-year institution in 1992 was $7,452. That's according to data from the National Center for Education Statistics. Today, a student at the University of Arkansas would be expected to pay approximately $28,000. And that's the in-state discount. At a private institution like John Brown University in Salem Springs, tuition, room, and board is nearly $40,000. The first federal loan program was offered under the National Defense Education Act, signed back in 1958. President Dwight D. Eisenhower supported the act, as he was afraid that Americans were falling behind scientists in the Soviet Union because of their recent launch of Sputnik. Over the years, student loans have gotten more complex and more confusing. There's the Perkins loans, direct subsidized loans, direct unsubsidized loans, direct plus loans. And those are just some of the government-backed or public loans. And unfortunately, student loans are more predatory than ever before. In the 21st century alone, the federal student loan debt balance has increased more than 583%. Twelve years after starting college, 66% of black borrowers owe more on their loans than originally borrowed. And more than half of black student borrowers report their net worth is less than what they owe in student loan debt. President Joe Biden's plan for student debt relief is threefold. Provide targeted debt relief, make the student loan system more manageable for current and future borrowers, and protect future students and taxpayers by reducing the cost of college and holding schools accountable when they hike up prices. Ronnie Lau is a lobbyist with the National Education Association, the largest labor union for teachers and educators in the country, and he says 45% of educators have taken out student loans, with the average amount around $55,000. So just to compare that, you know, the average amount of student debt is somewhere around 37000 So our educators are averaging significantly amount more debt than the rest of the general audiences. So as you can imagine, student debt is a very prevalent and major important issue to our membership. And us at the NEA as our union, we've been really engaged on the subject of finding solutions about how we can do this. Lau points out that he thinks the Biden administration did not go far enough, but it's still worth celebrating that some action was taken. 
as much as we want to say that it's not enough, this is still the first time this has been ever done by any administration. And that's honestly something to cheer about. And it's great progressive um, policy to move forward on. And the big thing also I like to also cite is that beyond just the broad debt cancellation amounts that they just announced that we'll implement, there are other student debt programs that are being functioned by the Department of Education that forgive loans in different ways. Public service loan forgiveness, total and permanent disability discharge, borrowed offense, for example. Those programs have been actually discharging loans for quite some time that the Biden administration has been working on and many changes to help make those processes easier to, for folks to obtain. Many of us, I'm sure, saw that graphic on social media from the president about the loan forgiveness. But at the bottom of that graphic might be one of the most impactful elements of this plan, payment based on income. Historically, this option has seemed helpful on paper, but many income-limited borrowers have been making payments of hundreds of dollars a month, but due to high interest on these loans, haven't seen that number go down, sometimes after years of making these payments. Here's Tony Aguilar, founder and CEO of the startup Chipper. But as you're making these, you know, three, four hundred dollar payments per month and seeing your balance increase, just like the mental and emotional like toll that takes on people. um, I I don't don't think that's talked about enough, uh, you know, for for millions of borrowers who are just like, you know, I've paid tens of thousands of dollars over time. And I still owe more than than I did when I left school. Under the new plan, the cap for these income-driven repayment plans will be capped at 5% of your monthly income for undergraduate loans. And all of these payments will go to the principal of the loan. You know, with this repayment program, the entire interest amount is subsidized by the Department of Education, by, by the federal government. And so... Borrowers on this repayment plan will not see their balances increase, even no matter what their monthly payment is. Aguilar's app, Chipper, works to help student loan borrowers find the best repayment and forgiveness plans available to them. There's so many that are out there, and we just want to make sure people know you know, which plans they're eligible for. Um, and we help people enroll into those programs. So not only do we show people you know, what, what options are available to them, we handle the entire enrollment process for them. And also, we help them chip away debt faster. So we have the first two folds, if you will, laid out a bit. Providing targeted debt relief with the ten dollars and $20,000 of forgiveness to those specific borrowers. Make the student loan system more manageable for current and future borrowers by, in this example, making the income-driven repayment plan a viable option to make a dent in your debt. The third one, holding schools accountable Well, we'll have to wait and see on that one. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. And this is Ozarks at Large. Many of you reached out with your specific questions about what President Biden's plan means for you or perhaps more generally for America. So I have Matthew in the studio with me now to go through some of these questions lightning round style. Are you ready, Matthew? Let's do it, Kyle. All right. First up, will people have to apply to have this loan forgiveness granted, or will the Department of Education just automatically apply it to your loans? Perhaps it's a bit generous to assume the federal government will do anything automatically, but I must admit I kind of assumed it would. Mm -hmm. According to Tony Aguilar, again with Chipper, he says there will be an application process. Hopefully it's very similar to the current forgiveness or income-driven repayment applications. What we're seeing now is that the Department of Education is hoping to get that application out by early October. 
So what borrowers will have to do is go online, verify their income, which Tony says will probably be from 2020 or 2021, and from there, the process will begin. And this ten dollars or $20,000 of forgiveness is going toward the principal of the loan and not principal and interest, correct? This... We do not know. Uh, Hopefully, though, right? (laughs) Uh, When we find out for sure, either way, we'll provide some updates. All right. So what about current college students? Will they qualify for forgiveness? So any loans that were pulled before July 1st of 2022 will qualify for this forgiveness. So if you are currently a student and have 10K in debt from previous years, that would qualify. Any loans after that date do not, though, at this time at least. And if you are still a dependent of your parents or a guardian, their income will be the determinant of whether you qualify for these loans. All right. And Matthew, when you first put out the call for questions about this, someone asked something that kind of surprised us both. What if you had just finished paying off your loans? Do you qualify for a refund or a stipend? Yeah, this question kind of caught me off guard. And I assumed, uh, obviously not. But turns out you actually kind of can. Tony explains here. For any payments that you made toward your federal loans during the moratorium, so from March 20 to now, like any payments that you've made, you can actually go get a refund for that amount. And so if you completely paid off your loans, you know, in the last two years, you can just reach out to your servicer and there's an application that they will fill out for you to get that refund. And from what I hear, it's a pretty quick turnaround, you know, four to six weeks to get that refund back in place, uh, which gives you enough time to then apply for the forgiveness, you know, so you can, you, you can have that, that amount you know, wiped away and, and back in your pocket. Wow. That's incredibly interesting. Yeah. So hypothetically speaking, if you had $10,000 worth of debt that you had paid off during that moratorium time, you could, in theory, ask for the refund from the federal government. They would give that to you. And then you could apply for that forgiveness of $10,000 and have $10,000. And again, that's payments that were made during the moratorium. That's right. That's right. During that time with... COVID-19, that payments stopped. Wow. Proving it always is worth asking a question. (laughs) It's always worth asking a question. That's right. (laughs) Matthew Moore, thank you so much for your help with this. Thanks, Kyle. The Arkansas School Safety Commission has approved more recommendations that will be included in a final report delivered to Governor Asa Hutchinson next month. The recommendations include each school having a coordinated school crisis response plan approved by state, regional, and district officials. There was also discussion yesterday about a recommendation made last week involving each school resource officer having a basic kit in the event of an active shooting. The kit would involve having body armor, shields, and tools for entering locked doors. Crystal Braswell is a member of the commission representing the Arkansas Department of Education. She spoke with Commission Chair Cheryl May, saying others, in addition to school resource officers, should be trained to use the equipment. My concern was those individuals who um, are not SROs that are going in to try to stop an attacker, and they may not have that specialized um and the protection that yeah, they the need. Yeah, the protection that they need. And so it may be one of those situations where they don't go because they don't have the protection or, or hesitate or something. You know, I just, 
I'm just thinking about those those individuals. No decision was made about that, with the matter to be brought up by a subcommittee on Thursday, then addressed at the next commission meeting next Tuesday. Members also approved the creation of an anonymous tip line so that people can let authorities know if they have concerns about someone. Theater Squared launches its new season with the world premiere musical comedy It Came From Outer Space, inspired by the 50s film On Stage Now through September 18th. When an astronomer claims to encounter a spaceship in the desert, everyone laughs until townspeople start acting strange. Are they here to conquer the Earth or do they come in peace? Tickets for the new musical comedy at theater2.org or by phone 777-7477. This is Ozarks at Large. Taking steps toward energy equity is part of the inspiration for an upcoming day-long workshop in Fort Smith next month. One of the challenges placed into deeper focus since the pandemic began in equities when it comes to energy. Low-income families, especially families of ethnic and racial minorities, are disproportionately more likely to face the threat of or actual disruption to energy service. While some states did enact a moratorium on energy shutoffs during the height of the pandemic, a working paper from the National Bureau for Economic Research finds COVID-19 infections could have been reduced by 8.7 percent and deaths from the virus by nearly 15 percent had a national moratorium been in place from March to November 2020. Many families had to leave homes or double up because of shutoffs. Paula Meikle, Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Sociology at the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, is helping to organize the River Valley Green Energy and Education Workshop in October. The planning for the event gained momentum after she delivered an address about energy justice at the Arkansas Environmental Policy Summit in Little Rock. Ethnic and racial minorities, and I'll be more specific, blacks and Hispanics, they tend to spend more than 10% of their income on energy bills. And so what that means, it creates a, a really um, perilous situation for them in terms of their coping strategies. Should I buy food or should I pay for the electricity bill? And then, of course, in the winter months, you know what they have to do, because in order to keep warm, then they'll use the money to pay for the electricity bills. Or the insecurity arises when, and in fact, um, we have a data on this that 17 million households in the United States of America um, are energy insecure. They can't meet their energy bills. And if you're energy insecure, you've either been threatened by the energy company that I'm going to disconnect your, your supply, or you've actually been disconnected, or you just don't have enough money to pay for the bills. The workshop, scheduled for October 20th at the UAFS Center for Economic Development in the Bakery District, is constructed to begin conversations about green energy issues and foster discussions about how low-income families can participate in a green energy transition. Letitia Sutledge, the dean of the College of Business and Industry at UAFS, says the college signed on to help sponsor the workshop because she says it's the college's and university's role to lead. Many individuals, many organizations were sort of flirting with the idea of green energy and sustainability. Uh, when Dr. Mikkel and I first had our conversation, uh, she was surprised to learn that our College of Business and Industry, we have an electrical engineering technology program, and students can actually route the direction of sustainable energy technologies. We offer a certificate of proficiency in that area. 
and that's relatively new for us. We have you know, students that are beginning to pick up the pace and exploring that because that truly is the direction of the future if you are designing electrical engineering systems. And so uh, our Center for Economic Development, part of that is the Center for Business and Professional Development. They are now working with companies to begin to put on seminars in this area of sustainable energy technology. Other partners for the workshop include the Arkansas Citizens Climate League and the Fort Smith-based Elizabeth McGill Center. The center, established in 1961, is a nonprofit that helps residents with housing issues, operates mentoring programs in four city schools, and works with young people. Herbert McGill, the center's director, says helping establish a River Valley Green Energy and Education Network fits right into the center's mission. I felt like it was an opportunity for the community to become aware of uh, energy insecurities um, and a way for them to be able to uh, save money in their household. And everybody knows that save, that, that made money and saved money will help you in the long haul. Robert McAfee, administrator of the Arkansas Citizens Climate League, says he wants next month's workshop to bring together a wide range of stakeholders, city leaders from the region, the private sector, as well as energy experts. Where we will start to realize what is needed specifically here in the River Valley and Fort Smith, and then how these experts can help us achieve that. Uh, because right now, we're just beginning to learn uh, what is the extent of uh, energy insecurity in the area. I mean, we have some uh, statistics and some uh, data available from the uh, Crawford-Sebastian County Development Council, which is the agency that gives out federal money for heating assistance and air conditioning assistance, but that's just a Band-Aid on this. You know, what we're hoping to do is eventually achieve where uh, low-income neighborhoods and these marginalized neighborhoods will be able to uh, rely on less expensive, green, clean energy. McAfee says there will be information about weatherization of households, green resources, as well as a solar truck to provide an example of solar power possibilities. He says there are continuing advances in private firms installing at low cost or no cost solar facilities with some of the savings earned turned back to the firm. And what we also would like to see uh, develop uh, in the communities, because a lot of these homes may be shaded and couldn't put solar panels on, is the development of community solar. Whereas an individual can buy into a community solar farm, and then it would just be like that panel or panels were on their house. They could buy as many solar panels as they want to uh, and offset this. He says one such community solar panel buy-in plan is already underway in Little Rock. And Herbert McGill with the McGill Center says the center in Fort Smith is working to provide another example of how solar power can work. Uh, at the present time, we're in the process of uh, being able to put some solar panels and on our building in order to share with the community what it has done for us. And so it sort of makes it more reputable toward people who hear a lot of disinformation regarding what uh, is happening with this solar energy. And so uh, by being an example and, and leader in our community, we're being able to show exactly the benefits of uh, what solar energy and other energies can do for uh, not just uh, a company, but for individuals. All of the partnering organizations stress the workshop next month is not intended as a place where 
people highly knowledgeable in green energy just talk to each other, but rather a day when residents with questions and curiosities and perhaps little or no working knowledge of green energy can ask questions and get further involved. Paulette Minkle, the program chair for the workshop, says that's why it was pivotal the University of Arkansas-Fort Smith take a big role in developing the workshop. So that's why I'm so delighted um, that we have our deans um, collaborating with us. We have our vice chancellors. Um, the chancellor certainly, um, if she doesn't nod, they can't nod. So she, they've nodded. And so when you think about the university as a change agent working in the service region on this important matter and providing the intellectual capital, that is so important. It's such a good example for our low-income families to see that the university is doing this. The River Valley Green Energy and Education Workshop is October 20th at the UAFS Center for Economic Development in the Bakery District. That's 70 South 7th Street in Fort Smith. Capacity for the event is capped at 120. There are more than two dozen scholarships available for students and low-income residents that will waive the $15 registration fee. You can learn more by going to happeningnext.com and then seeking out the River Valley Green Energy and Education Workshop page, or you can go to the homepage for the Arkansas Citizens Climate League. That's ARKCCL.org. We also have those links at OzarksAtLarge.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Joseph Wood is a surprising man in many ways. He was abandoned on the streets as a baby and was eventually fostered and adopted. He nearly became a Catholic priest. He's a proud alumni of the historically black fraternity Kappa Alpha Psi. He's a Chicago native Republican, and he's also the first black county judge in the state of Arkansas. Cree Banton, host of the podcast Undisciplined, joined me in the latest episode of the show to talk about his life experience. Me being county judge, I think we talked about that. Um, being the first black county judge in Arkansas's history, just mind-blowing. I had no clue, no idea, because when I won, I went straight to work. And I am just started looking through archives that I'm responsible for, and I started looking at some of the first property in this county that was ever sold were slaves not mm-hmm. not a house not a car yeah. it was a, i'm like wow and to think a little short because this years space later, is being settled with slaves that's exactly right here mm-hmm. i am now the judge over this 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 short 200 years and so again that did not so is is that for you like a story of progress in washington County? oh I, I think it's a story of america the piece i always go back to we got major issues in this country but mm-hmm. i think even when the the founding documents of this country were put together, and we talked about the preamble in order to form a more perfect union. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not perfect, and they said in order to perform. So that's the work that we all have to do. And from the president of the John Quincy Adams, who said, "Hold on, we got these documents that say that all people are created equal, but it's not true because we got slaves." Mm-hmm. And, and so, but for a country to say, "Okay, we got to reconcile that," or if you were white and, and didn't have property, you couldn't vote, or if you were women. A woman, mm-hmm. you couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. Well, again, most countries are they going to really reconcile and and, and stri- to overcome and become what they they say these ideals are all about? And we have, and so today we got more people being able to vote and got presidents who are black. Whereas when this country got started, that can that was even never a thought. 
maybe the, for our people who are dreaming and believing and hopeful, who had a Christian walk or a walk of faith, that may, not now, not me, but maybe my kid or maybe my great-grandkid can see that. And so anyway, I see all that as, as the, the, the success of a U.S. that people around the world mm-hmm. still sees this place called America as a beacon of hope a place where they can be and do and have in this country that they can't be, do, and have in their country. Again, with all the frailties that we have, with all the things that we see as issues and concerns, other countries like, is, is, is that what you guys are anxious about and fussing about? Come to my country. You can't, you can't, can't even articulate it, let alone say it. And you can't do I always want a piece of it. I just want a shot at this, quote, unquote, American dream. Sure. We're making a more perfect union. So is that what inspired your foray into politics? No, it really wasn't. <laughs> My, I, 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 and I, I, I don't want to be known as a politician. I don't want to be, I, I do not, I'm not, I don't like, I don't like politics, but I do like serving. I do think that we all should have an opportunity to, to be a public So servant. you think politics or a politician is a bad word? I think most people believe it is. I, I, I don't know if anybody say, oh my gosh, my kid wants to be a politician. That's so great. <laughs> now, if they say, hey, he wants to be a president, that's great. He wants to be judge. That's great. And I do think that it does have, uh, it, gets, it's a bad, it gets a bad rap, like being a law enforcement officer. They get a bad rap because you got bad officers, you got bad politicians, you got mm-hmm. bad teachers. But when I speak of politicians, I, that was never anything on my radar. Again, it was mom and dad going through a divorce, mom saying, you got to take care of your brothers and sisters. And I'm like, what do I do? And so I started by being involved, never knowing it was politics. I just thought it was keep my brothers and sisters from getting caught up in gangs and drugs. It was helping other moms and dads in the community have a place for their young people and all. And next thing I know, it leads to working on local school council. And next thing I know is working with board of election. And it's just me being engaged in places that I live. And then all of a sudden the whole party stuff started to come alive and like, Oh my gosh! And and I couldn't. What do you I, mean by party stuff? I I'm just doing public service. Mm-hmm. Didn't understand all the dynamics of party. Well, in Chicago, there is no parties. There's just one. The Democrat Party is the Democrat machine. I didn't know any different mm-hmm. until I came back from college and and started doing like why is this stuff? So still were you wrong? involved in Democratic politics in Chicago? Not at all. It was because because you didn't have to. It was just every everything was. Okay. It was when I came back from college. You know, you go to school for what mm-hmm. to learn how to think and ask mm-hmm. questions. And be more, and so I came back, and I couldn't understand why some of the same stuff was going on in the city. The same work was, same broken things. And uh, I was talking to an older guy who was a capital, mm-hmm. and he said, "Well, first of all, you you you're talking to me like I'm a Democrat." And I'm like, "Everybody in Chicago is a Democrat, black, white, old, young." He said, "No, I'm I'm a Republican." He's an older black man. I was like, "What in Chicago?" I was just stunned. He said, "In fact, I'm a third generation Republican." In Chicago, get out of here," he said. "Well, part of it's because you have no idea about Republicans again, because everything in Chicago is is Democrat. The machine, everybody knows about that." And then he started talking about Republicans. I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" Look like scales were falling off my eyes because it lined up with more of who I am and what I believe, as mm-hmm. opposed to me. And his comment was, "Everything that you are working toward and on, you go and vote against it on Tuesday." Whoa, because he started like wow, I switched parties in what 1988. Are the, what are the one big of the things? One of the big ones. One of the big ones was life. I'm a I'm a big foster care and adoption piece. But yet he said you vote for people who are not. They're more pro choice. They're about uh, having the ability to vote. And all. I'm like, yeah, I am voting that way. Uh, why would I? Uh, he talked about 
uh, the answer is the government. And you're, you're out here trying to, you started your youth group, you started doing this. So you're trying to engage people to do and do some things for themselves as opposed to letting the answer be government. That's not where, and so again, as I started unraveling, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true, that's it. So that started me to start spending more time. Okay, now I see. Ah, and it lined up far more with my beliefs, my values. And so in 1988, I switched parties, and I haven't looked back since. Now, I so do you think were a Democrat at first, and then uh, my you whole life parties? I was Democrat because ah. well, when I say my whole life. I only had probably one election. 1988 uh, was the first time I was able to switch and and vote Republican. So I only had maybe one or two elections prior to that because I was again in college. Uh, so I wouldn't have that many elections. So I. But my whole life around the Daily Machine, I mean, everything in Chicago is just driven by by union bosses and by uh, uh, what's the guys, the, the ones who go. This, my te- my mother was a teacher, so I, again, that's teachers all I experienced. Teachers, everything in Chicago uh, was the steel mills. Everything was largely big shoulders. That's that's what it was. You think if you had been in Texas, maybe it would have been a different story? Oh, it probably have been the other way. The environments that you're living in. Well, what's interesting about Illinois, I grew up in southern Illinois. Okay. And it's a very rural, very conservative, conservative. part of the state. state. That's right. And growing up, everyone I know claimed to be a Democrat, but no one's no one's real, like— political beliefs aligned with the Democratic right. Party. But there were so many folks who, uh, you know, even in local elections, they would put a D next to their name, even though they were in every way, shape, or form a Republican, because they knew that if they wanted someone to vote for them in a primary, they had to have a D next to their name, Absolutely because no one was right. going to grab a Republican primary ballot. That's exactly right. And I'm sure you had that same experience, In fact, too. when I was a board election judge at the election day, I was sat at the Republican booth, and they were like, oh, they couldn't find any Republicans to sit down at this. And I'm like, no, I, I, I choose to be here. And again, just because, <laughs> be uh, yeah, it's just, it, even now, I mean, yeah, at 20, 20, 30 years later, I still get folks like, scratch their head. Me running for county judge here in Washington County was just an unbelievable piece because, again, I don't think you can win, win county judge without getting some Fayetteville votes. Mm-hmm. The rest of the county may be relatively conservative, but the city of Chicago, uh, city of Fayetteville is considered probably one of the most progressive cities in the state of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Well, how would I pull that off? Well, I didn't know if I would be able to pull it off. All I knew is who I am and what I've done. I spent 27 years in Fayetteville. My kids went to school here. I was in the soup kitchens here. I mean, I, I was at the, the local, uh, at the university. I did all kind of work here doing the same stuff I did in Chicago. And I really think it was people who said, I know this guy. I know mm-hmm. his kids. I know what he does. I don't understand why he's a Republican, but I'm a vote yeah. for him. And they, and they crossed <laughs> they, over they for probably, the first time. Uh, they, 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 they look past the Republican Exactly thing. right. Uh, <laughs> I'll hold my nose and vote for I, Judge Wood. Yeah, right, because I know I see the Democrat <laughs> name on there, but I don't know that Democrat. I know this guy. I know what he's been doing. I see his kids. I know what he's doing at the church. I know what he's doing with business. He recruited and brought business. He recruited and brought me here. I mean, and so they did. And then they vote me in a second time. So uh-huh. therein lies where the party piece at, at the end starts to say, okay, what are you doing? What is the result? So when you ask the question about what is that to be the first black county judge in Arkansas's history, blew me away. I just knew for sure that would hap- that happened a long time ago. It hadn't. Mm. Why? Because, again, if I'm thinking about parties, the, Demo- the Democrat Party had run it run the state for probably 130-some years before Republicans mm. took over everything. And it's only been 15 years Republicans have had 
governor and uh, the Senate and yeah. House and, and then all the legislative seats has always been run by Democrats. So I'm thinking, well, if you're the champion of, you would have had county judges and governor and lieutenant governor. You, but that's not, that hasn't been the case. And for whatever that reason is, it is. Here I am. Well, we know the reason in terms of uh, the history of, uh, you know, extrajudicial violence and all of that kind of stuff. I, from, that you're saying kept... from the Democrat side? I can't speak to what that what? is. Well, yes. Yeah. I see. Yeah. But I'm not on that side, so I don't know what that inner well, working is. Well, I mean, is. there's a deeper history there, too, that sure. I think, um, well— is acknowledged, but I don't know if it's necessarily acknowledged by Republicans about um, because I'm sure you perhaps identify with the early roots of the Republican Party absolutely. and abolitionism oh, yeah. oh, and and black and civil so, rights even, politics yes, and right. all of that and all of the early black Republicans, the majority of them no. after you know during Reconstruction, that's correct. after the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, who exactly got into right. politics. That's right. And then what happened then in the in the fifties and sixties, right? You, you, the southern strategy. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I just don't know if I buy into the total strategy. I just think that at that point in time, there were people who wanted certain agendas to be met. Johnson and and his crew, and here's how we can uh, maintain that, and we're going to come up with programs. We'll have things that we can give as a way to uh, to bridge and bring people, and I think that may have caused more harm than good. Uh, at the point in time that people were, uh, it's, it's been, what, 60s, mid-60s when all this civil, uh, I, I don't know if there's been a true benefit. Here's a small example. A true benefit to whom? To, to the minority community, which was supposed to be the benefactor of uh, the Johnson and the civil rights priests that he passed, that, he, that they passed all this stuff. Nixon didn't. Uh, Johnson, Nixon tried. Uh, uh, Johnson did. But well, Nixon's Kennedy guy passed. came out recently to talk about how they did the whole strategy, right? Who, who's it's his like guy? Um, uh, Lee, Lee Atwater, Atwater. his yeah. famous Atwater. interview in um, 1981, um, and just talking about on the Southern strategy. Where mm-hmm. He said, "He says you start out in 1954 by saying N word, N word, N word. By 1968, you can't say N word." That hurts you. Mm. It backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, mm. and all that stuff, and you're getting so abstract. Now you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And a byproduct of them is black people get hurt worse than whites. We want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than saying the N-word. Right. Okay. So so he, he's talking about the Southern strategy. And I mean, you know, I, I wish, uh, you know, at people like Professor Angie Maxwell was here because she writes about those kinds of things okay. in the political science department and mm-hmm. can better explain it than I can. But um, the, the Southern strategy, uh, Dixocrats and all of that kind right, of right. stuff, I, it's a very fascinating sure, thing to no me doubt. because. We must know that these parties evolve over time. I, absolutely. You know? I, but I think that genesis and their roots don't. I think that foundation still still remains. You can hear Judge Wood's full story, including his time in Ghana with the Arkansas Secretary of State, on the latest episode of Undisciplined. The podcast is a collaboration between Ozarks at Large, KUAF, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. 
Mic check one, two. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. KUAF now produces eight podcasts with important topics ranging from mental health to cryptocurrency with more than 20,000 downloads a month. You can reach these listeners with information about your business or organization by sponsoring a podcast like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, Undisciplined, or others. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast on KUAF, email me at ryan at kuaf.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Kyle, I am working on the first episode of season two of Natural Election. Um, Can you tell me this? What is Arkansas issue two, the ballot measure that's going to be on the ballot this November? Issue two will change how future amendments or initiated acts can become reality. Yes. Does that, what does that include? Does that include just ballot measures like recreational marijuana, does that include other things? It includes other things. <laughs> it includes all things that would be in a proposed amendment or initiated act. Right. So uh, I just got off the phone recently with Representative David Ray, one of the sponsors of Issue 2. Uh, we'll be hearing about that and much more. That's coming out this Tuesday. All right. That's the first episode of the second season of Natural Election. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Magdalene Serenity House, a nonprofit committed to helping women rebuild their lives after trauma, addiction, and incarceration, will host their inaugural event, Rebuilding Her, Thursday, September 29th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville. The event will include a five-year birthday celebration of the organization, honoring the founders of the organization and recognizing the achievements of the graduates in their recovery journeys. For more information and tickets, loveheelsnwa.org. The FDA has authorized a reformulated COVID-19 vaccine booster that targets both the original alpha coronavirus as well as newer circulating Omicron subvariants. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration on August 31st amended the emergency use authorization for the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine and the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, authorizing bivalent formulations for updated booster shots. Dr. Joe Thompson is president and CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, headquartered in Little Rock. So bivalent means that the vaccine has protection against two different types. In this situation, two different variants. This bivalent COVID vaccine protects not only against the original parent COVID-19, but it adds protection for the more recent Omicron variants and their progeny. The bivalent formula contains two messenger RNA components of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 infection. According to FDA, one targets the alpha strain, the very first strain of SARS-CoV-2, and the other targets Omicron BA.4 and BA.5 subvariants now in circulation. Thompson says the first vaccines developed for SARS-CoV-2 were quite effective in preventing COVID-19 infection, hospitalization, and death. But as the virus mutates, that's changed. As the virus has mutated to be more infectious, the boosters and now these new vaccines will likely prevent us from having those bad outcomes of hospitalizations and death. But the virus itself has become 
more transmissible so that it can penetrate our first layer of defense, but not necessarily if we're fully, fully boosted and vaccinated, take over our bodies and cause the harm that it's capable of doing. Biologically manufactured vaccines deliver active, acquired immunity against certain infectious disease. But timing when to schedule vaccination and booster shots is critical. So the boosters, if you've been previously vaccinated, it's waiting two months. If you've been infected, it's three months or more to wait till your immune system calms down and can and take the booster. Uh, so I think that's the recommendation. With these new boosters that are becoming available, uh, there are two different versions. Moderna is for those 18 years and older. Pfizer will be available for those 12 years and older. Again, if you're two months since your past booster or three more months since a past infection. The new bivalent Moderna booster is for individuals 18 years and older. The Pfizer booster will be available to those 12 years and older. The Moderna and Pfizer shots can cause mild side effects. As we tape this, the FDA scientific committee and review have found the vaccines, the bivalent vaccines, to be both effective and safe, similar to the previous messenger RNA vaccines with similar low level of side effects of fever, soreness, but with the protection. Late last week, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Independent Vaccine Advisors, the Committee on Immunization Practices, voted to recommend the new vaccine boosters. The decision was later approved by CDC's director. The committee also provided guidance. Of who should get the vaccine and when to get the most benefit and have the least risk. Arkansans remain in the dark regarding COVID-19 infection rates across the state due to pervasive home testing. The Arkansas Department of Health does not count positive home test outcomes, only positive clinical tests. Fortunately, we do not have good line of sight from our testing or from the case reporting uh, because people are home testing and that doesn't get reported or they're not getting tested at all, even if they have some mild symptoms. So the indicator that I think is the, the hardest, strongest indicator is the number of people in the hospital, which we are today, as we, as we take this, we have 318 people in the hospital. The highest level we had was back in July where we had 442. So we're about two-thirds to three-quarters to the highest level we've ever had. An autumn COVID-19 surge is expected with public and private schools resuming courses this fall in person. We know from our past experience that schools are a place where COVID experiences increased levels of transmission and that there are steps that can be taken to reduce that, including good hygiene, you know, making sure things are wiped down. Uh, when we're at the peak of the Omicron and the Delta virus, facial masks. I think we've moved beyond that, but I think parents should keep their kids home if they're symptomatic. I think school officials, teachers, and parents should strongly consider getting boosted and vaccinated up to the highest levels of protection. And of course, if you have a family member at risk at home because they're immunocompromised, take extra precautions because as we go back into the school-based setting, we're mixing a lot of families together that have not been together. And with that mixing comes an increased risk of exposure and subsequent transmission. Vials of both Moderna and Pfizer bivalent booster vaccines are being shipped out starting this week. Government subsidized COVID-19 vaccines widely available at clinics, pharmacies, and public health centers are free to everyone six months of age and older living in the U.S., regardless of immigration or insurance status.
Hundreds of millions of doses of COVID-19-free vaccine have been administered in the U.S. since the pandemic was declared. The U.S. government, however, is reportedly planning to end its free vaccination program early next year. The Biden administration last week also suspended its mail campaign for free at-home rapid test delivery. Ending free shots and tests is the result of Congress failing to continue to authorize funding. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The four women in the band She's Us recognize an opportunity. They'll perform on top of Mount Sequoia Saturday night as a full moon rises, and they've prepared a medley of moon songs for the concert. The members of She's Us, Sean Frick, Judy Neal, Jude Dunleavy, and C.C. Box, have played music and written songs for years before establishing She's Us. As their friendship and musicianship has grown over the past few years, their catalog of songs has too. Most of what, well, we were trying to put together things that we already knew. So we could be playing out because we already had some some opportunities for gigs before we were really ready. <laughs> so we had a lot of covers and stuff that we had all, you know, um, recognized and could put together pretty quickly. And then as, as time has gone on, um, I think we veered more towards um, our original music. So um, we all write and we all sing and do harmonies. So um, <laughs> We've got so many songs written between the four of us that we would never get to do them all, but. Yeah. <laughs> it's better to have too many than not enough. Yes. Exactly, exactly. That, that's our problem, I think, a lot of the time is that when we have gigs, we, we are trying to pick from the material that we have that we've all written, and it's hard to edit it down. Is the writing solo and then each of you might bring it to your three bandmates or do you collaborate? How how does a song come together for She's Us? Well, we've uh, we wrote one song together during the pandemic because we couldn't meet. So we were doing Zoom sessions and Cece had this piece of a song that she said, okay, I'm gonna throw this out to everybody. And um, she threw it to Sean and Sean picked it up and then I picked it up and then Judy picked it up. And that was a, that was the only collaborative, real collaborative song we've written was Hold On To Love. A perfect one for the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And, and it's a, it's a reggae version. It's a reggae song. So it's a little different than the other things that we have done. So. Yeah. I think what we collaborate on all the time is the arrangements. And that's, I know I've become such a better musician because we don't just kind of say, okay, everybody know this one in the key of C and you all jump in. <laughs> we go in and and we work word by word and note by note and, you know, what are we going to play here or there? And that's the that's the creative fun of it. When when one of us is willing to kind of turn our song over to the collective of the band. And we and make, do. We kind yeah. of let go of it a little and say, OK, do your thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's because there's a magic that happens when all four of us are together and we trust that. Yeah. It's just amazing how um, an idea that any one of us might not have gotten on our own, something about our being together, these ideas just come to us and we try it. And there's another opportunity to go, ooh, wow, that works. You know, and sometimes it's like, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. It's not really quite there. Let's try something else. Let's slow it down. Let's speed it up. Let's change the rhythm. Let's change who's singing it. And so we just keep trying different things. And we just know when we've hit it right. Yeah. It's a, a joy. This sort of adaptation, is it happening in real time while you're together, perhaps for a rehearsal? Or do you sometimes separate, work with somebody else's, uh, you know, germination of a song and come back and say, what do you think about this? We've done it both ways, actually. One time Cece was out of town and we took one of her songs and just changed it all up. <laughs> changed it. Changed it. Significantly for the better when I came back. You know, we had a little ego moment going, well, that wasn't what it was, but this is the way we do it now because they made it better. And I will tell you, Kyle, we practice every week, two hours on Wednesday nights, and there, it is the most fun I think you can have with a group of human beings. There's the most laughter, there is the most discussion of everything, therapy, you name it. Yeah, sometimes out of those conversations that we, we just get laughing and creative and silly, and, and then someone will go, oh, that's a song idea. And then something new will emerge, and, and you know we get some of our best songs that way. The show this weekend is at Mount Sequoia, which is a kind of a cool place. What can we expect from this show? You can expect um, lots of original songs and um, one new medley that we just created for this particular night. We call it the Moon Medley because it's going to be a harvest moon that night and the moon will be rising right as we're finishing up the gig so we're going to sing to the moon and maybe others will join us maybe dance to the moon um, and just a lot of fun we, you know we do have our harmonies we play different instruments um, it's it's meant to be creative uplifting fun it's been a hard time for people these days, and it just seems really important to bring a positive message to people. I'm 59, so I know that creatively, life experience, things are different for me now than when I was in radio when I was, say, 29 or 25. Do you find, as coming together... In, at, at the time you did, the things you think are different that had you, four of you, met to become a band 30 or 35 years ago? <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Enormous. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. I, we've all, I mean, we've all been in different groups and different bands and done, I've been in a Southern rock band and in a reggae band. And, and, and I think, I think, you know, it, it, at the time that that we got together, our music is about it's just about enjoyment and having fun. And um, it's not so much about mm, trying to be famous or, or anything like that. You know, it's just about we we pick and choose where we play and we don't take every gig we're offered. And um, 
we're we're a little more laid back now and and um I, it's it's a good it's a good place to be but it's definitely different for me i i can't speak for the other gals but i'm sure it, it's it is oh yeah yeah it's um you know we're it's a it's a lot it's completely different for me i mean i just same same thing as with sean i've been in rock bands and wedding bands and folk bands and all kinds of uh, jazz, uh, you know, jazz rock type things. And I mean, I, when I was younger, I was really trying to make it, you know, and there's not any of that in that for me now. It's about the creative process and really for me working together with three other people, three women, and it's, I've, I've grown so much as a person through this experience, you know, emotionally, uh, musically, in every way. We're in our 60s and 70s. You mentioned age, Kyle, and we're in our 60s and 70s. And we want to be models for younger people who may think they can't have a dream come true, that they're too old to do that. or, And it's like, no, you're wrong. Life is, is so full, it's so rich, and we're doing what we love, and we're sharing that, and we want to inspire others to follow their dreams and do what they love doing too. No matter how old they are. Yep. <laughs> because it keeps getting better. And it'll keep you, it'll keep you young. It will. The members of the band She's Us, Sean Frick, Judy Neal, Jude Dunleavy, and Cece Box talked with Kyle yesterday via Zoom. They'll perform on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville Saturday night at 7 p.m. You can find out more at either she'susmusic.com or at the events page at mountsequoia.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Big Cedar, Oklahoma. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Karee Banton. Additional content provided by the new staff at KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. I'm Matthew Moore. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. He also produces Undisciplined. We return with a new program tomorrow at noon and 7. And through our podcast, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for listening.